And hello, everybody. It's time for another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. Thanks for listening. I'm Robert Polly. If you lost everything you had, if all the usual pleasures and pursuits and hopes and dreams that used to give life meaning were gone, what would you have left? I mean, how would you go on living? And where would you get your sense of purpose? How would you even get through the day? Well, for most of us, that is just a depressing thought experiment. But for people doing life in prison, it is a real, practical, everyday question. It's a question that's at the heart of a documentary film that's the subject of today's show. The film is called At Night I Fly, and it's getting its West Coast premiere in Santa Cruz on November 13th. The filmmaker is Michelle Venzer, my guest today on the program. The film follows a group of inmates, most of them lifers, in California's new Folsom prison. That is the younger sibling of the more famous original Folsom prison, the one that Johnny Cash sang about. And Michelle was particularly interested in how some of these guys, living out their days in this gray and soul-sucking place, have found solace and even self-transformation through involvement in the arts, through reading and writing and music and how we on the outside could learn a thing or two from their examples. Michelle is Swedish, and how he wound up making a movie in a California penitentiary is a story in itself. Thirteen years ago, he was driving trucks for a living, but his real passion lay elsewhere. I always had an interest in music, but before then, I had a lack of self-confidence to to work with the arts, you could say. And um, in 2000, I, I... gather the courage to try to re-educate myself. So he went back to school, and that's where he met the Swedish actor and theater director John Johnson. Johnson had been producing plays in prisons with inmate actors, including a celebrated performance of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot that he staged in San Quentin in the late 1980s. He introduced Michelle to the poetry of Spoon Jackson, one of the inmates who'd performed in Godot. I was fascinated by the thing that Spoon was was writing poetry as a way of sort of dealing with the, the circumstances he was in. And I could recognize that myself. I Myself, I was state-raised in foster homes and um, survived mentally, I think, by reading books and listening to music and, and writing. And I could really relate to the place he was talking from. And the importance of art, how important it was in his life. Michel was so taken with the poetry that he struck up a relationship with Spoon, who by then was housed in New Folsom. Michel ended up making several short films based on Spoon's writings, and then later headed to New Folsom to make At Night I Fly. By the way, that film takes its name from one of Spoon's pieces. I was already familiar with Spoon Jackson's uh, work before I saw Michel Venzer's film, And Michelle and I began this interview by talking about Spoon's writing. Spoon um, is a guy who took up writing and really formed his relationship to language in prison. Um, I had him on this program a couple of years ago when his memoir, kind of a dual memoir that he wrote with Judith Tannenbaum, came out. And I just wanted to uh, play for our listeners a little bit of him reading his own writing. This is from a, a prison payphone at New Folsom. Um, this is <laughs> what it sounds like when you talk to someone over one of those payphones. But this is the opening 
of his portion of that memoir, which is called By Heart, and he's uh, remembering his childhood in uh, Barstow, California. An Indian summer at San Quentin, and the sweet sun brings back the times I ran the dry river with the greyhound dogs and lay under the heavy black railroad bridge as the trains rumbled across, shaking the soft sand. In those times, I watched the shadows of the rail cars dart by, and when night fell on a hot day, Clay kicked the can in pure desert darkness. There were no street lights on Cook Street when I was a boy. Um, so that was the voice you heard, Michelle, uh, that got you interested in this subject. Well, I mean, it started with letters and uh, letter writing uh, for quite maybe a year before we tried to talk on the phone. And, uh, yeah, and then that was uh, the voice, and that's how I, I started also by doing recordings that sounded very much like that. You mean uh, recordings over the phone? Yeah. So eventually you decided to do something really ambitious, which is to make a film inside a prison about prison conditions and about what the arts mean to some of these inmates. That is a really hard thing to do. I, I myself have tried to get into New Folsom to interview Spoon, and uh, it was impossible, So, which is why I ended up interviewing him via that prison uh, payphone. Uh, how did you get access to the prison to bring a crew inside for uh, for how long? Days at a time? Yeah, we were there in um, 2006. I think we had um, clearance for 10 days shooting, and then I got an additional four days in 2007. It took me like, well, maybe five years of work until they gave me the clearance. And I think it was a combination of luck and that I was sort of very, I didn't give up. So persistence and luck, I think it was a combination <laughs> of those two that gave me the possibility of, of um, shooting in this very, very closed uh, environment. Luck and timing, I think. Uh, different prison administrations have different policies, oh, yes. and some make it impossible. Some are more uh, open to uh, journalists and people like yourself going in. Um, tell me about your your first time in an American prison and your impressions. Well, um, I was very focused on the job I was going to do and to meet the group. I was very, very focused on how how would they perceive me how would i how would i present myself you know i think it's an unpleasant situation to come in as a documentary filmmaker to people who are exposed and are in a very vulnerable uh, situation and you come in with a camera and you want something from them my instinct tells me that is a unnatural and uh, unpleasant situation and then, of course, all the, I mean, the technical aspects of that it was a limited time, that time was so valuable, I had so little time. I mean, the very harsh and brutal environment, um, I didn't get a first impression like that, that I was shocked or I was very focused on my work, if, if I say so. It is certainly one of the most difficult environments to film in <laughs> that mm -hmm. you, one can imagine. Uh, because of all the restrictions. I mean, moving around, getting permission to go from one place to the other, getting inmates who are on a strict schedule uh, to mm -hmm. sit down for an interview. Uh, I've tried many times and uh, failed many times. Occasionally I get lucky and get in, but uh, it real, a real challenge. And you managed to make a film that feels complete, 
in in that short a time, two visits, ten days and four days. The film alternates largely between interviews and scenes of particular prisoners um, in the arts program, and then just imagery, imagery of the the facility itself, of what life is like there. Very, very grim. In fact, uh, I'd like to play a clip from the film of an inmate uh, named Marty Williams describing the reality there. It's a great place. It's a, it's a place where everything that's, that's fucked up gets deposited. And that's why I'm here. You know, and that's why we're all, that's, in my judgment, that's why we're here. It's not the place that you see in the movies. You know, where there's, like, homosexual rape and there's the, the wars and the gangs and the stabbing, and, and that's just not... That's the enticing reality that entertains people out in society. They love that. I don't know why, but they love it. They eat it up. And that's just not what this place is about. This place is about isolation. It's about closure of both the mind and the heart and the spirit. The feeling of hopelessness that kind of pervades the whole place, not just from us, but from the cops. From other staff, this sense of dreariness that, you know, that's like weight, you know, and it's like cold that sucks out the heat. Sometimes I feel that. And the worst thing about this place is just that it is what it is. It's doing its job, which is to keep us contained. That's it. Serves no other purpose but containment. What Marty is mentioning there, that's the reason why I wanted to go there, because I... I couldn't recall ever having seen a documentary from a prison that sort of talked about what prison actually was. It's it's all about the other stuff that he mentions, you know. So the deeper philosophical aspects and psychological aspects of prison and what is prison uh, actually. I mean, that's the the thing I wanted to investigate by doing this because I I felt that I could, because of my background, also understand what it what it would be to be in a place and not being able to get out i wanted to talk about this you know and i think that marty and spoon and rick and all these guys that choose to share uh, their experiences with me they understood that i i wanted to, to listen to them I mean, what is prison you know tell me about marty williams uh, who we just heard speaking uh, about life mm -hmm. in new Folsom prison he's He's featured um, throughout your film, a uh, very interesting guy who could really put into words some complicated things. Yeah, he's a very wise man who, who is also has a philosophical side to him and, and um, has gone through a lot of things of getting to the place where he is. A lot of suffering for a long time in that place, and, uh, and he has made some really profound discoveries about himself and what it what it means to be a person. So uh, I was happy that he really uh, trusted me and chose to share that. Hmm. He's in for life? Yeah, he has life without, just like Spoon Jackson. Life without parole. And he seems to have made peace with that fact? I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I can't tell you that. You know, I know that uh, they go through different stages also still, you know. There's time where you're, when you are more at peace with your circumstances and, and times when you are less at peace with them. So 
I, I don't know really where Marty is right now, unfortunately. I've, he's also been moved, so I lost, um, for the moment, I lost contact with him. But I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that I can pick it up quite soon. You have a scene in the film of Marty Williams talking to Spoon Jackson, along with a prison official, about whether they accept the fact that they may be there for life. And Marty says he accepts it and that prison is his home, and Spoon says that he'll never accept that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very important scene in the film. And, I, and I, it's there, and I think it's very good because it's very complex. Because Spoon has a political perspective on why he's there and so on. And what Marty is saying is also not that simple. He accepts it in one sense, in another sense he doesn't. And then you have the prison officials also trying to side with Marty a little bit, but Marty backs off from that. So I mm-hmm. think that's a wonderful scene in, in its complexity. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it says a lot. And I can't really, I don't want to get into interpreting what it actually says, because I can see while editing, I saw different things in it each time. So, hmm. Hmm. but it's very interesting. It is, yeah. Hmm. Um, as I said before, uh, the film has a lot of images of life in prison, just moments and scenes, alternating with interviews and and statements by some of the inmates there. One thing you show very clearly is racial segregation in the prisons which is very, very stark, enforced by the inmates themselves. Here is a, a guard who walked you through the prison yard at New Folsom, uh, describing sort of the racial turf occupied by different groups uh, in the prison yard. All the whites, this is where they hang out, right here. Inmates from Hawaii, Pacific Islanders, Filipinos, Tonga, they all hang out on this table right here. Southern Mexicans, Mexican Mafia, hang out on these two tables right there. They're the worst. They're the worst. That, by the way, is a clip from the film At Night I Fly, Images from New Folsom, by uh, my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project, Michel Wenzer, uh, filmmaker from Sweden. The film is going to be shown in Santa Cruz on November 13th at 7 p.m. at the Rio Theater. It's part of a benefit for the Prison Art Project, which funds uh, prison arts programs. So, Michelle, was that something you were expecting to see? Did you know about that um, before you filmed it, the um the strict racial segregation? Well, I knew it was uh, racial segregated, but I didn't know how much, and it was shocking to me. And I think the most shocking thing was how the it was also totally accepted by the prison authorities or prison officials that uh, the cell blocks were divided and the rows like that, and that the rotation with uh, when people were going to the yard, was everything was totally structured out of uh, ethnicity and gangs. So I think that part of it was was really shocking to me. Uh, and it, again, is enforced by the inmates, although you say it's tolerated uh, by the administration. Um, they go along with it. But I've spoken to inmates who say, yeah, you know, out here, whether it's in the yard 
uh, whether you're in the chow hall eating, you have to stay with your group, and if you don't, you may be punished by members of your group. Even if you're a person who comes from an integrated setting, you know, where you had no problem with people of the other race, you have to play by these rules once you're there. That's what's interesting also with the Orson Corrections group, and inside there it's okay to to hang out and talk and, and uh, be doing poetry or music together with these um, boundaries. Uh, by the way, you show some security camera footage of racial battles taking place in the prison yard. One looks like a group of whites and blacks fighting. It breaks up with one guy unconscious with the pool of blood forming around him. Was that a new Folsom? No, I think that footage is from Pelican Bay. Pelican Bay, another maximum uh, security facility. I, yeah, I think so, but I'm not exa- exactly sure. I, I was When I was given security camera material, it, it wasn't explained exactly which facility it came from. Uh-huh. And uh, things like that happened at New Falls and Prison, so I wasn't really... For me, it didn't matter exactly which prison. What I wanted to show by by adding that, because I was very hesitant of adding that to the film, but I felt that I really needed to show what these guys were up against and what they were challenging by actually doing what they do inside this arts and corrections room there. Right. Uh, so I think they are very brave because they are doing that. They are actually challenging that that way of doing time. The room you're referring to is this tiny windowless room uh, in the prison where these guys come together, the guys who are in this arts and corrections program, come together to talk, to share their writing, some recite poetry, some perform music, and it's completely different from everywhere else you film in the prison. What's interesting to me is I've never been to New Folsom. I've been to San Quentin a number of times, and there's another there's a room just like that there. It happens to have windows, but otherwise it looks a lot like it. And the feeling is the same. Guys of all races, very supportive of each other, tremendously supportive of each other. There's a there's a really amazing atmosphere. And the guys I spoke to, ev- almost every one of them uh, in praising the arts program said, it's a place where you can drop the racial hatred, the racial division. Uh, I wanted to play a clip from one of the guys I talked to there some years ago who was part of Arts and Corrections. He was performing as part of their Shakespeare troupe. Um, So you're going to hear him referring to that. I did the war thing. I came down from a fourth-level pen. You know, I've earned my bones. But I will tell you point blank, if I had to go back to that, I'm not that guy. You know, this has changed me. The very sophistication of learning has transformed my, my state of being. Fourteen years in prison, most guys are pretty pissed off and not because I've started to realize that in the time that I've been here, I keep learning, expanding, becoming more. It could be because I'm almost 50. Who knows? But the point is, is that you start to see something and then you start to see it in others. So you realize you're not alone. And that's what Shakespeare is. You're not alone. It's about the human condition. And all of these racial barriers are gone. They're gone, man. I mean, all these guys, we hug each other in front of everybody else. We don't give a damn. Sound familiar? Oh, yes, very much. Very much. Why are these rooms so tiny? That's my question. You know, why isn't there 
wasted just one room. There's 3,000 guys at New Falls in prison, so there should be, you know, plenty of these rooms everywhere at the prison. That should be a, a main priority, I think, in the prison, in the modern society, you know. And and as you saw, you know, it's it's a very, very tiny space. And that's too bad, you know, because there's so many people inside, I'm sure, given the right environment, they would like to do time differently than the way they are doing time. Not all, not all, but but a lot more than what fits into this little room. Um, not only are the rooms tiny, but we should say that the program uh, we keep referring to, Arts and Corrections, has been eliminated uh, at one time. It spanned uh, all of the 33 prisons in California. It was a California program. There, I mean, it had uh, resident artists, uh, artist facilitators in all of those prisons who brought in outside artists to teach, and it had a thriving series of um, ongoing you know, educational and participatory activities in all these prisons. And then starting in the early 2000s, as the state budget fell apart, and then culminating in 2010, it was almost completely eliminated. Um, now, um, a few people who used to be so-called artist facilitators have found new positions there and continue kind of on the side with private funding to provide some of these these classes, but they've really been cut down to almost nothing. Um, the person in your film who's, who was doing this in New Folsom was one of those artist facilitators, Jim Carlson. And... Uh, Jim now, I guess, is still at New Folsom, but he had to be moved into a new position, so he can't do the kinds of things he used to do. That's my understanding. Is that yours? Yes. And it's also, I mean, uh, Jim is getting ready to retire also, I think. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Jim has an interesting connection, in a way, to your film, as I understand it. Um, it was through Jim, I think, who was visiting Sweden that the theater director, Jan Johnson, uh, who was directing plays in Swedish prisons, came to the California system and directed Waiting for Godot in the 1980s, met Spoon Jackson, and it's through him that you met Spoon Jackson. So, you, so there's this interesting connection. Jim Carlson has, uh, I guess, ancestry in Sweden. Yeah, that's quite a crazy story. He came to, he came to visit his relatives, and he heard about the this uh, theater play being performed at our maximum security prison here in, in Sweden. And somehow he got invited or he called and said who he was and they invited him. And he was impressed by John's work and uh, said, hey, why don't you come and put your, up your play at my prison in San Quentin? So that's true. And, uh, and then I heard John Johnson talking about his experiences. And Jim and, and Judy Tannenbaum have also been doing and writing together with Spoon and all this, they were actually presenting Spoon Jackson. Spoon was already in, in Judith's poetry group, and and Judith and Jim, I think, both uh, sort of talked Spoon into the idea of, of performing in a theater play, and then they convinced John to, to try Spoon, and he did, and it worked out. You know, I, I've actually interviewed um, John Johnson, uh, the theater director who's uh, spent so many years directing plays in prison, mostly in Sweden, but also uh, a famous performance of Godot, uh, Waiting for Godot in San Quentin, uh, mm -hmm. that featured Spoon Jackson. And he told me that he went to meet the, uh, the inmates uh, and that Spoon uh, was in this group, 
all in this arts program, and the spoon didn't say a word, was utterly silent. And uh, and yet John was uh, attracted to him, thought he had something, and decided to cast him in the play, <laughs> despite the fact that he didn't even talk. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the that's the theater director's uh, version of the reality. <laughs> that depends on who you ask. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about the contrast between Swedish prisons and the prison system here, as you've seen it, uh, particularly in this area of rehabilitation, of education, and arts programs. Well, I'm, I really can't speak on that subject because, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm not really the typical documentary filmmaker who chooses my subject. I mean, my film comes from a per- personal um, relationship to Spoon and from my own personal experiences. So I haven't investigated that and I don't really know too much about it. I mean, mm. what I do know is that we are moving here, we're moving in totally the wrong direction. We are building now, starting to build these maximum security prisons from a more American or U.S. model. And that, uh, I mean, I've been I've been inside Swedish prisons showing this film now. And uh, uh, what everybody is talking about that there is no money for the arts because they spent it all on building these maximum security prisons, which they then can't really afford to have people in because the facilities themselves are so expensive to run. So. It's not that perfect situation here. It used to be better, and I think that's a common factor here. That I mean, in in the 80s, you had a, a fantastic program in California, the Arts and Correction program, and uh, and in Sweden, it was, as far as I know, was very good, or or at least much better than it is today. So that that's uh, something that we have in common, that it goes in the in the wrong direction. I think. Hmm. I wanted to play another uh, clip from your film, from uh, At Night I Fly. This is uh, the inmate Marty Williams again. This time he's talking about the arts program and what it means to him, what it could mean to others. There's a thousand guys on the yard. I wish we'd have a thousand guys in here. A thousand guys. I just would be amazing because most guys in here do not know. They didn't have a good education. I didn't have a good education. They didn't have a lot of people around them telling them that they were valuable, telling them that this part of themselves was valuable. Maybe they were valuable because they could kill or they were valuable because they were, you know, slippery or whatever. They, you know, the things that they were taught were valuable about themselves that they came to believe were true. And they come in here and find that there's this whole other world inside of them. And all of a sudden, who they are and what they are completely changes. It changes their philosophy about what's important anymore. I imagine there are people who, you know, on the outside who say, why are we so concerned about arts programs in the prisons? Isn't that kind of trivial? Uh, Isn't that just a luxury? Isn't that a non-essential item? I'm interested in your personal perspective. You said, you know, part of your deep interest in the subject comes from your own experience. Yes, I did this film, I think, because of my childhood experiences of being placed in a foster home and being told that you're going to stay here for 10 years until you you turn 18. I was eight at that time. And uh, I counted the days, you know, and I was uh, very miserable in the in the place and uh, where I was, and it was a very bad place for me to be. You know, I totally related to 
very early in life, um, prison literature, films about prison first, but then also, I mean, poetry and literature and music about, you know, people being in a place where they didn't want to be and being exposed to bad stuff. And how do you, how do you deal with that? And literature and music and poetry and, and other forms of art sort of um, broke my isolation and uh, it helped me survive. It's interesting, the, the contrast in your story with those stories of the men in this film. Most of these guys are lifers uh, with very little chance in some cases of getting out. And some of them, like Spoon, look back to their childhoods as the last time they were free, as a time of freedom, of possibility. Um, whereas you look back on your childhood, and that's when you were confined. So you, you've lived sort of mirror, a mirror image, you know, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of their life story. Was that something that, that you thought about when you were in there or, or going through the footage later? No, I never. It never occurred to me. It's very interesting when you say it. <laughs> At least to me. <laughs> I don't know if it's interesting for anybody else, but to me, that's very interesting. I never thought about that. I don't know if I want to think about it, but it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to play another uh, piece by Spoon, and this again is about his childhood in Barstow, mm-hmm. in the desert, and this is a kind of idealized world that he describes here. Back then, Cook Street, the rails, the fields. Bee Hill sitting in the middle. The town carved around at the hill's waist. Kicked the can on dark nights. Hard to find the hidden. Back then our eyes went open to see in darkness. One street light in the heart of crooks. One store owned by folks who lived somewhere else. One people who didn't know the world had passed them by. One people who didn't know the world beyond the purple and red clay mountains ran on a faster track. One people who believed in the same God that he stood only above in blessed Crook Street. One sky, but only on Crook Street. Someday there'll be another Crooks, but not here, but in another world. There'll be Crook Streets everywhere where all children are everyone's children, where all people leave their hearts and minds open like windows and doors. That was a poem, I think, called Back Then, and uh, Crook Street is, I guess, the street. Is that the street where he grew up in Barstow? Yeah. Yes, it is. And uh, I never heard that, that poem. I don't know if it's, is it new? Well, I interviewed him about three years ago, and oh. I'm not sure if it was new then. No, uh, maybe it's just coincidence. But I, I recorded so many of Spoon's poetry over the phone, so I'm just surprised that I didn't recognize it. But uh, I think it's beautiful. And... Uh, and uh, yes, he come. He grew up at Crook Street uh, in Barstow. Um, Spoon uh, committed his crime, I guess, in his late teens, and found himself, you know, sent away uh, for what has been the rest of his life. Um, and he told me at the time, you know, he he hadn't gotten much education. He did. He was getting in trouble. Uh, he felt isolated. He. Uh, didn't really have a strong sense of self at all, and he didn't have a strong relationship to language. It was only during his trial, discovering the fact that he didn't understand the language around him, uh, the legal language that was going to affect his life, that he determined that he would change that, and he started reading and learning. 
uh, and ultimately becoming a writer himself. Yeah, that's that's true. There's a, another inmate you include um, in a number of scenes, another very interesting guy. Um, his name is Rick Meisner. Is it pronounced Meisner? Uh, yeah, Meisner is what, what, they, what I heard the guys call uh, And he's, he's yet another guy who seems to have come from a very tough background, serving you know a long sentence, but who has really changed in part through his involvement with the arts. Um, and uh, I thought I'd play just a little another snippet from your film of him talking about himself and, and the changes he's undergone. Prison has taught me that there's routines, and if you follow the routine, you can make it through the day. I'm going to keep following the routine that I'm de designing right now. Because I'm going to keep making it through the day. I'm going to keep doing this. And I'm going to keep being a better person every day. That's what I'm fighting for, and it's not for any parole dates because I'm not getting one of them. It's not for any false sense of friendship or anything, because I, I like me. I'm doing this for me. For once in my life, I'm doing something for me. And I don't care who likes it or who don't like it. I like it. I, I like the way I'm starting to walk. I like my spirituality all of a sudden. I like, you know, knowing that things are sacred. I, I, that's what I like. So I'm going I'm to keep, you know, I'm going to keep waking up and I'm going to keep getting up. Sometimes I might have to sit down and cry a little bit or whatever, but I don't care. I'll cry. I'm not giving up. I'm not going back. It sounds like he's another guy doing life without parole. Mm. Um, and I, 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 I'm guessing there are people who would say, well, look, you know, these guys are, it's over for them. You know, they'll never get out. They won't be able to pursue, you know, their dreams. So why waste time on them? I came there because I think that, that the concept of life without the possibility of parole is inhumane. And I think death penalty is inhumane too. I don't accept that. As a, as a human being, I don't accept it. So I don't want to get, get into discussion about that. Why spend efforts or money on these guys? We have already thrown them away. You know, I don't, I don't like that and I don't accept it. So, and I think that it's interesting what Rick says. I can learn, you know, me, myself, I can learn a lot from that. I think it's, it's uh, applicable uh, to other situations in life also. What you show in this film is people discovering some meaning for themselves and some purpose in the most limited conditions where they can't even realistically entertain some of the fantasies we have about our future. <laughs> but... For me, watching your film, it's a constant lesson that that's what we have to do on the outside, too. We have to make things meaningful, even though we are extremely limited and we do have, we are mortals, you know, that it's all going to end. Mm. And I, I imagine there's people who might resist the idea that a guy doing life without parole for murder, let's say, has something to teach the rest of us. But um, that's the way I took it. And then you took it right. I mean, that's why I went there, you know. And uh, I think maybe I'm just guessing, but I think that's that's why it took so long for this this film also to be screened in in, in the United States. Also, you know, I never made it into any film festivals or oh really anything like that. No, and I hear that a lot from people like they never seen prison like this where you present the inmates 
without you know putting them either as innocent or as regretting you know first we, we are told what have they done and maybe they are they feel that they're full of regrets or something but to just you know come there and talk to them and let them speak without even even uh, you know mentioning what why are they there i mean i think that's uh, might be very provocative for for some people hmm. Uh, I'd like to remind listeners that the film we're talking about uh, is At Night I Fly, Images from New Folsom, by my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project, Michel Wenzer, uh, documentary filmmaker. The film uh, is going to get its first screening in our area on November 13th at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz uh, at 7 p.m. You can find out more at riotheater.com. Theater is spelled uh, with an R-E at the end, not E-R. The um, screening will also benefit the Prison Arts Project, which is helping to keep some remaining arts programs alive in the California prisons after state funding has been um, pretty much eliminated in recent years. Um, You know, you said you had a hard time getting it screened, and and maybe there are people who might be resistant to the film here in the U.S. And earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, that this is not the usual view we get of prison. In fact, you're, you're probably aware that um, in American media, prison is a big subject these days, often in a very sensationalistic way. It's used in entertainment a lot. A lot of fictional stories are set in prison. Uh, there are some ongoing TV documentaries like National Geographic's uh, Lockdown Show. Americans are fascinated by prison these days. But yeah. a lot of the images are very sensationalistic. They're the kind of thing that Marty... Uh, Williams in your film says is not what it's really like, you know, rape and constant violence. It's, uh, you know, uh, endless routine of isolation of people being shut down and turned off, you know. Um, But were you aware that Americans have become more and more seemingly obsessed with prison images and entertainment? Well, no, I wasn't aware that it's increasingly uh, that it's increasing in in that sense. But I, I somehow I was determined from the beginning that I was going to do something different. I'm thinking it's probably not quite the case in Sweden that that prison drama is a big staple of entertainment there. Well, it is. I oh, mean, is and, it? And it's also like we are living in, in little USA, you can say, because the, the media, 60, 70, I think 80% of the media that we consume is, is from the USA. Oh, oh, oh wow. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing here. Uh, I have another um, portion of an interview I did that I think I'd like to share with you. Yeah. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of the people who teach in arts and corrections programs um, in prisons over the years. And one of them is uh, named Soraya Keating. She's an actress and uh, theater director with the Marin Shakespeare Company. And she teaches Shakespeare and directs plays in San Quentin. And I asked her why she thought so many people these days outside who have no relatives in prison, you know, who are not directly connected to the prison system, uh, seem to want more and more Hollywoodized versions of prison, why they're fascinated by prison. And here's what she said. You know, prisons to me, or the way we treat people in prison, is a reflection of how we treat the shadow aspect of ourselves. 
So I feel like, you know, in my own life, there's been times when I really haven't wanted to look at my own shadow, and I believe we all have one. And there are other times when I've really embraced my, my shadow. And so I think that's part of the fascination with, with prisons and perhaps why other people are so interested in it too. Also, deep down, people probably have a great fear of being in prison, so that might be another reason. But that thing about the, the human shadow, the, you know, that part of our psyche that we don't want to explore. <laughs> the more you try to shut it out, the more it creeps into your right, as imagination. Car- as Carl Jung said, whatever you resist persists. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's true. I think Marty speaks about this in my film, too. Um, I don't know if you have that clip where, where he says, we are you. Yes. If what's darkest about us can find ways of transforming uh, that, that alchemy of turning lead into gold and, and, or garbage into, into treasure, if, we can f- if that can happen in here, then there's hope for out there. And people out there need to see that, that that's what the hope is. It's not about, oh, you know, I, I transformed my life, let me out. No, that's not, <laughs> I'm not even remotely suggesting that. I'm just saying, we are you. We are you. You know, not just your, you know, people's, oh, well, you're, we're, we're, we're your sons, we're your, son, your daughters, we're your fathers, we're your, you know, it's not just that. We are you. you know, and everything that's true about me is true about you. And I cannot be convinced otherwise. And that, that was my whole also idea with the film, you know. I really relate to this guy, so it's a film about me, you know, uh, if you understand what I mean. So yeah. in that sense, I, I'm totally there, you know. I'm, I'm, uh, and I think that, you know, the whole concept of demonizing people in prison is so... It's, People somehow uh, like to see that, you know, in the entertainment industry. But I think I think it's disturbing to people on a deeper level. Maybe they're aware, maybe they're not. But it's disturbing that we have prisons and that they they work the way they do, and that we don't really believe in the in that superficial way prisons. The concept of prison is presented to us as full of sort of monsters. So. Um, I think that's also part of why somehow it's, it's still fascinating. You know? It's disturbing more. There are those who, in depictions of prison, always show, you know, monsters. And then I think there are more liberal-minded people who, you know, are pleased to see images of redemption and even falsely accused folks who don't belong there, who are great people. It's the system that's completely at fault. I mean, there are two, two very extreme representations, though a lot of inmates will say, no, it's, it's neither. It's a whole mix of people. There's all kinds of people in here. Mm-hmm. There are certainly some people, as you discovered, who are very smart, very thoughtful. Often it seems the lifers are the real philosophers. They've had to confront mm-hmm. some things that most of us avoid thinking about. You've captured some moments of real wisdom, you know, coming from these guys. Uh, I know that people who teach in the prisons are attracted by that, too, because they <laughs> they they discover that these are some of the best students. They, they're constantly telling me this, some of the best students they've ever had. 
Yeah, yeah, sure, and I, I agree. And, and I mean, as I said also before, that was also initial, initially what I thought, you know. If, if you are there and if you have survived there for such a long time, you must have come to some really important conclusions in life. What sort of feelings did your experience leave you with? I don't know if I'm ready to speak about that yet, because it's happening all the time. It's not really done yet. To me, it was it was really disturbing that the film hasn't been screened in the U.S. yet. And it has had some success in Sweden and around Europe, and I, and I didn't feel too good about that, because I felt that, you know, uh, until it's been screened in the U.S., so that the, the, the guys, the family of the guys who are in the film, and people who are working with these issues, they can't really get hold of the film. They haven't until now. Uh, so that has been quite disturbing. So, I mean, it's it's actually been picked up by a distributor also. The Cinetics is going to release it in now in November. I don't know in which format. I think on Netflix and iTunes and stuff like oh, that. Oh, really? Really? But you did mention that it was shown in New Folsom. Didn't you tell me that before we started the interview? Yes, I screened it inside the arts and corrections room. Oh, in the little uh, room that you depict in the yeah, film. Um, in the little room, yes. So at least some of the guys who are in the film got to see the film. Yes, that's true. Tell me about that moment and that reaction. That was very, very interesting. Uh, and I also was allowed to have an, um, someone from the prison film the whole thing and record our, our discussion afterwards. And I have that material. I haven't had time really to edit it, but I would like to you know, release it on the web or something uh, later because I think it's, it's, it's very strong and important additional material to the film to actually have the guys talk about uh, what they thought about how I pictured them. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, um, and it was very nervous, of course, um, coming there, screening it and watching it together with them. Um, and it was, I mean, from the film, Rick wasn't there, Spoon was there, and Marty was there. And those were the two of the main, so to say, main characters. They were, they were watching it. And, it was uh it was they liked the film they they thought that the film were were true that's what they communicated to me you know and uh they were thanking me for not selling out not doing something you know spectacular or um you know superficial um but it was also hard for them to to watch it to see themselves uh, from the outside like that oh really uh, yeah and also uh, I think a bit confusing to be sitting in the room watching the film that sort of great part of the film uh, is, is actually recorded in the room. And then, you know, they saw themselves there. It was... Uh, um, it had a strong impact on them. Yeah, tell me... Explain a little bit more about what you just said, that it was hard for them to see themselves. You know, because you... You can imagine yourself. I mean, you, you're in your your life, you know, whatever you do. I don't know you as a specialist today, but me, if I take me as an example, you know, I live my life, I go, I do my work, I do that. And then imagine someone, you know, um, recording you and, and 
showing you how your life looks from the outside. You don't have that view on your life, you know. Yeah. And they are they are in a very extreme situation, but it's normal to them. But then to see it, to, to, to sort of get that perspective, to back off a little, see the environment um, pictured in, in, in that way, their environment where they live. Uh, and in the film, it's kind of depressing, you know, yeah. the environment. I mean, I think the film is positive. I think it has lots of vital good energy and, and lots of stuff like that. But it's, of course, it's, it is a depressing environment. And the film shows that. So they, what they saw was, they actually saw themselves in the place they're in from the outside. And I think that that um, was hard. You know, uh, that's what Michelle... They, that's what they said to me after, at least. Right. You know, Michelle, you're, you're reminding me of something um, that I realized when I was talking to some of these guys and then making them part of my radio show, is that one of the things you give up when you go to prison, um, at least under these circumstances, is not just your physical freedom, but you give up the ability to define yourself in society. I can walk around and present myself and pretty much project the image that I want to. I can describe myself in any number of ways, you know, whether it's by my profession or my interests or my accomplishments, different sides of myself. For them... When they're shown in a film like yours or, you know, when they're heard in a program like mine or they're in a newspaper article or people learn about them some other way, they will always first and foremost be prison inmates, criminals. That's the first thing people will always think. They're defined by this one thing. Yeah, that's something that they talk about a lot also. Judy Tannenbaum said it. She was here uh, in Sweden um, when the film was released here and we're doing some press conferences with me. The premiere was at the prison in Sweden. Judith said she did this experiment with the whole group, and she said to everybody, I want everybody to close their eyes and think of the worst thing that you have ever done, and take a moment and just hold that memory. And everybody did that, and all this staff and all this, you know, head of departments and everything. And she said, and now, now imagine being judged from that moment that would be the first impression for the rest of your life. That would be the first thing that you will come forward with in all new contexts, in all situations, and that is what prison is. Wow, that's, so that yeah, that's better. exactly what I was saying, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so that was a very powerful way of saying, and I think that's what I mean, as you say, in my film they are presented as prisoners, but even with my first short films, all the Q&As I've done after the screenings, there's always people like, but what have what has Spoon done? I said, I don't know. I'm not interested in that. You know, it's not a film about him as a criminal. It's him, him as a poet, and he's in a bad place, and that is part of the story. You know, but uh, but his crime isn't part of this story. Some people get it and say, oh, I see what you did. Now we have to meet them as more like persons. They are still presented to us as prisoners, but they are not, at least not, presented to us with the worst thing that they ever have done, you know. Something that happened in an instant at the age of 19, uh, 35 years ago, like in Spoon's case. They can get to know him as a poet now in this film, so I think that's, uh, uh, that's a different approach. 
Yeah, that that goes back to what uh, Marty Williams was saying in that that clip I played earlier. These arts programs in prison give these guys an opportunity to be something other than uh, a criminal, mm. uh, a bad guy. They can start seeing themselves as having some other identity. I'm a poet. I'm a musician. I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. I'm an actor. And I, I think people don't adequately get, um, at least in many cases, and I'm not going to overgeneralize, the degree to which these guys do feel horrible and mm. ashamed, mm. you know, yeah. at least some of the ones I've talked to. I think some people are skeptical. They see too many, again, prison dramas where people are completely unrepentant and never think about their crimes because they're, they're psychopaths. But a lot of these guys live mm. constantly thinking about themselves as, you know, failed people. No, I think you're right. And, and that's why I think also this entertainment industry with this um, superficial presentation of prison is dangerous in that sense. You know, I wanted to uh, play another little bit from an interview I did with Spoon. I think this this matches some of the feeling in your film. Mm-hmm. You know, after talking to you um, in a number of conversations, hearing about your, your life, uh, you know, starting out as a, as a quiet, um, detached kid, being a guy who was very quiet in prison for a long time, didn't talk much, thoughtful, mm-hmm. a reader, a writer, um, and here you are in this this tightly packed environment, you know, side by side with so many other people, um, there's like no privacy there. You have 120 seconds left on this call. No privacy, brother. There's like like no privacy there in prison. I mean, yeah. how, how, do you, how do you cope with that? Uh, going deep inside myself and disappearing into, inside myself into other worlds, into books and pondering things. Find it that set me free because when you close your eyes and, and ponder, you, you're part of the universe. You're no longer limited by your body, as far as I'm concerned. So freedom inside. Yeah, and it takes you out way. Like my geese friends left. They took off and flew away. I flew away with them. You had some geese in the prison yard there? That... Yeah, it was raised as babies from egg. We had to watch them. I watched them grow and befriended them and everything. Had to see them fly away. When did they fly away? About seven days ago, they flew away. Oh. They had been here a long time. I watched them grow, grow from a little... That reminds me a lot of the title of your film, Michelle, At Night I Fly. Yeah, that's true. Well, I was, uh, thank you for playing that. It's great to hear. When was that from? Uh, I think 2010 was when I last spoke to Spoon. Mm. Well, Michelle, I thought it might be appropriate to end. by hearing from Spoon Jackson, who was in some ways the inspiration for your filmmaking, I guess, um, and the reason you ultimately made this film in, in New Folsom Prison, At Night I Fly. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I owe a lot to Spoon. I mean, I was just started studying music when I got in touch with his poetry, and it took me to uh, university and uh, and my debut as a filmmaker and um, changed the course of my life. So I, I owe it all to Spoon, I could say. You know, and he was definitely the the prime mover of this uh, film project. That is, you know, that's really something. A, a, a man who is locked behind bars without parole was able to, you know, somehow widen your 
range of possibilities. Oh yes, yeah, and and I'm I'm working actually on a new film now, doing research, and I asked Spoon to to be part of that and write a chapter on um, on the film. It's more an essay style film with speaker voice. So I actually reached out to Spoon now and asked him to be part of that project, and that feels really great too. And I hope that we possible to do that and to having us a co-worker on something that I'm working with that uh, where he can just be equal part with me you know um, as a co-worker I mean we, it's not that we will do it all together but he will he will have a part in it as a as Spoon Jackson and not as an inmate somewhere you know so that that's just really great mm. Yeah, he told me that I asked him what he would do if he got out, and he said he'd move to Sweden. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, he's got lots of friends here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he would have a great life here, you know. Huh. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry he wasn't a part of the program today, but um, I'm really glad you were, Michelle. I really, I really appreciate your taking the time, and I just want to, um, again, say for listeners uh, who maybe missed some of the previous announcements that... Um, you are Michelle Venzer, a documentary filmmaker and a musician. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, your film, At Night I Fly, images from New Folsom, uh, about New Folsom Prison in California, otherwise known as California State Prison in Sacramento. Your film will be shown soon in Santa Cruz, November 13th at the Rio Theater at 7 p.m. More information can be had at riotheater.com. And the uh, screening is a benefit for the Prison Arts Project. That's a project run by the William James Association here in Santa Cruz, which was the longtime uh, uh, nonprofit that helped run the arts and corrections program in the California prisons, which has now been eliminated. Michelle, thanks so much for um, you know this conversation. And just one last quick question. Are you planning any other films or any other sorts of documentary projects in prisons? In, not in prisons. At the moment, but I'm planning, as I said, to have Spoon as a co-worker on my my next film as a writer and use texts produced by him. But it's it's not about prison. Uh huh. Well, thanks again. Thank you, Michelle Venzer. Uh, and by the way, Michelle mentioned uh, in the interview we just heard that At Night I Fly had not yet been shown in the U.S. Other than that uh, one screening he put on at New Folsom Prison. But he later corrected himself. He remembered that it was shown at the Museum of Modern Art last February as part of the uh, documentary Fortnite series. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And we are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. We're going to finish off here with some music from a scene in At Night I Fly. This is the inmate uh, Rick Meisner playing Native American flute. 